Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Kristen Eikenser and Kathy Huang, both professors of law at the University of Virginia. We'll be discussing their essay, National Security Creep in Corporate Transactions, which is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review. I'll add a link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. Kristen, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. And Kathy, welcome back. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Kristen, Kathy, I'd like to level set a little bit before we start delving into your paper. Your essay is focused on the CFIUS process in corporate transactions. I wonder if you could introduce CFIUS, that's C-F-I-U-S for the listeners. What kind of agency or process is CFIUS? What's the mandate of CFIUS? Who's responsible for it? And what can CFIUS do or require? This is Kristen. I can start out here a little bit and then Kathy can chime in with more detail. CFIUS, it stands for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And it's an interagency committee that's chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury, but it includes representatives from a bunch of different departments. So justice, homeland security, commerce, defense, state, energy, U.S. trade representatives, and also has some ex officio members like the Director of National Intelligence. So what CFIUS does is it reviews inbound foreign investment for national security concerns. And it does that with a mix of both mandatory filings by some parties and also a large number of voluntary filings. Once it gets one of these filings, it screens transactions using a multi-step process, and it's doing basically a risk-based analysis or a risk assessment, and it considers the threat posed by the transaction, which is really about the intent and capability of a foreign person to take actions that impair the national security of the United States. And then there's the vulnerability piece, which is the extent to which the U.S. business basically presents vulnerability and possibility of impairment of U.S. national security. And then you put those two together and look at the consequences to national security if you have a threat actor that exploits the vulnerability. This is Kathy. So I'll just add that for the corporate piece of this, what we really mean is when you have a deal that involves a foreign investor investing in a sensitive U.S. business, broadly defined, they may have to in some limited circumstances, or it may be a good idea to go through a CFIUS process or at least have a conversation with CFIUS about whether CFIUS needs to review it. And that process bears some similarity to the antitrust review process. So it can be a preclearance process, but if it's not pre-cleared, CFIUS can also review it sua sponte after the deal has closed. Once CFIUS does its sort of risk-based process, it can do a couple of things. So it can clear a transaction with no national security concerns. But if it does identify national security risks, then a lot of CFIUS's power comes from its authority to negotiate with the transaction parties and to come to what are called mitigation agreements. These mitigation agreements can include a whole variety of different requirements. So they can do things like bar the sharing of intellectual property, limit access to particular technology to U.S. citizens, limit the location of certain activities or products to the U.S., require that certain sensitive assets be excluded from the transaction, require a corporate security committee, U.S. government appointed security officers. They can do a whole variety of things. And in 2020, which is one of the more recent years for which we have data, about 12% of the notices that were filed with CFIUS ultimately resulted in these mitigation agreements. 
But for some transactions, a mitigation agreement itself might not even be enough. And so if CFIUS determines that a national security risk remains and that a mitigation agreement can't resolve that risk, it can actually recommend to the president that he or she block the transaction or if it's a deal that's already closed, order the transaction unwound. There have been a couple of pretty high profile examples of that in the last couple of years that we can talk about. Grinder, a dating app, and also there's an outstanding order with respect to TikTok. Kristen, you talk about this process as being really centered in national security, but I wonder if there might be some economic or commercial interest of the U.S. that CFIUS is also perhaps protecting. Is it protecting more than just national security? Is it potentially being used in ways, or is it, to some allege at least, or, or view it as being used in ways that are designed to protect economic or commercial interests, or are those two things maybe really impossible to disentangle? I think where you ended there is how I would answer this, that it's becoming increasingly difficult to disentangle issues of economic security and national security, and that's become deliberate and explicit U.S. policies. So both the Trump administration and the Biden administration have taken the position that economic security is national security. And this is of a piece with shifting conceptions about the breadth of things that fall under this heading of national securities. To give you just one example, if you look at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence publishes an annual threat assessment every year. And so this is basically a report that gives you a rundown of what are the sorts of things that the United States thinks are threats or problems, national security problems. The one for this year, for 2022, has sections on China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and global terrorism. But it also talks about health security, climate change, innovative uses of new technology, migration. All of this is showing, I think, a shift in how the United States and not just the United States, but other countries around the world are broadening their understanding of what counts as national security. And we've clearly moved far beyond just state-to-state conflict or even the post-9-11 focus on transnational terrorism. Bringing it back to CFIUS, you do have the remit of CFIUS is to look for national security concerns, but the underlying statute that gives CFIUS the authority to do that doesn't actually define national security. So it's up to the executive branch, by and large, to define what counts as a national security concern that would be within CFIUS's purview. It was mentioned that a number of these filings are required. Some of these processes are sui sponte. Could you talk about the kinds of deals that tend to either attract or require CFIUS review? The, the essay you talk about, the distinctions between, or maybe even the convergences between inbound and outbound investments. Could you talk about that piece a little bit? This is Kathy. So when we think about traditional stuff, like I always say in my class, when a Russian oligarch buys a piece of a defense contractor, that's CFIUS. And then it just steps down from there in terms of who's investing and how much they're investing and whether they have control or not, although you don't have to have control to get reviewed by CFIUS and what kind of industry they're investing in. Recently, we've seen that become pretty expansive. There's been a lot more interest in things like apps that collect personal information. And that's one of the things that CFIUS is particularly interested in. So things that we wouldn't Traditionally, I think of as national security. They're not making jets for the military, but stuff that we think are like critical infrastructure, critical technology, personal data have become things that the CFIUS is interested in. This is Kristen. So just to pick up on what Kathy was suggesting there, there have been a couple of significant CFIUS actions in the last couple of years that have really made clear this new focus on the security of personal data. In 2019, pursuant to the CFIUS process, there's an ordering of an unwinding of a 
Chinese company's acquisition of the American dating app Grindr. So CFIUS doesn't publicly explain its decisions, but there was speculation that this was because the U.S. government doesn't trust the Chinese government possibly having access to the sensitive personal data, the kind that might be shared via a dating app. More recently, the Trump administration actually also ordered ByteDance, which is another Chinese company, ordered it to divest itself of TikTok. And more recently, just in, I think, November of 2022, the FBI director testified to Congress and gave a little bit more color on kind of what is the concern with TikTok. And those negotiations about divestment are continuing in the Biden administration. So what Christopher Wray, the FBI director, said is that the United States is worried about the possibility that the Chinese government could use TikTok to collect data on U.S. users, to control the recommendation algorithm and use it for influence operations, or to use, I think, the software update process to compromise the devices on which people are using TikTok. Seeing this focus on personal data, on sensitive personal data, that's explicit in the CFIA statute now, but that's a shift, right? A dating app is not your sort of traditional, stereotypical national security concern. And yet, that's something that CFIUS has proven to be very concerned about over the last few years. The focus of your paper is the national security creep in corporate transactions, which does suggest sort of a transition over time. So with that great kind of overview of CFIUS today, I'd love to talk a little bit about the history of CFIUS, at least at a high level. Could you tell us a little bit about the origins of CFIUS, what's changed over time, and where you would say we, we might be today, and set up that concept of the national security creep that you're seeing? CFIUS was established in 1975 by President Gerald Ford. It's this interagency committee that, broadly speaking, has jurisdiction to review transactions that might pose national security risks. For a long time, CFIUS wasn't really a big thing that you thought about. I often tell people that when I worked on my first deal in 2010, 2011, something like that, it was a foreign investor investing in a U.S. business, and literally nobody on the deal had thought about CFIUS at all. So it was that sleepy, right? People didn't think about it at all. And it only reviewed a few transactions a year, ordering a few mitigations in types of transactions that you might expect. But over time, Congress has expanded CFIUS's authority several times. Now it reviews a bunch of transactions. And I think it'll happen more, especially with the passage of FIRMA in 2018. So this is Kristen. Let me pick up a bit with FIRMA. The story with Congress and CFIUS is that Congress has increasingly, over time, passed statutes that sort of expand CFIUS's authority and formalize it. FIRMA is the most recent statutory update to CFIUS's jurisdiction. It was passed in 2018, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, and it was implemented by regulation in 2020 did a couple of things, but it expanded the scope of transactions that are subject to CFIUS review. It made a the previous entirely voluntary system for filing with CFIUS mandatory into a small subgroup of transactions. And it also created the possibility explicitly of CFIUS discriminating among countries that are involved in the transactions. So the biggest change here is with respect to the scope. So basically, FIRMA expanded CFIUS's jurisdiction in a couple of ways, it explicitly allowed CFIUS to review certain real estate transactions, like the purchase or lease by a foreign person of property that's near something that raises national security concerns. And it also allowed CFIUS to review non-controlling investments. So before Fort Firma, before 2018 and the regulations in 2020, CFIUS was really focused on the idea of a foreign person gaining control over a U.S. company. But now... It, it's allowed to review lower level investments. So non-controlling investments in businesses that are involved with critical technology, critical infrastructure, 
or sensitive personal data of U.S. citizens. So we're seeing CFIUS have a broader reach and also increased staffing that allows it to actually take advantage of that increased jurisdictional scope and to review more transactions. With that background in place, and it's really helpful background in terms of the CFIUS process for me and for the listeners, with that background in place, I'd like to talk about the main contribution of this essay, which is this concept of a national security creep in corporate transactions. What do you mean by national security creep and how has that developed over time? Could you situate that for us? Sure. So I'll take a crack and then Kristen, you want to take a crack? And then if we, I don't know actually if we've actually discussed specifically. So if we disagree, we can merge. So I think of national security creep as this increase in CFIUS's jurisdiction to review a larger and larger group of deals. So some of that has been formally through the expansion of CFIUS's jurisdiction. Some of that is just CFIUS as a committee has more staffers so they can look more stuff. They review more high profile deals. There's also, I think, some because it's an executive committee, there's nothing necessarily to prevent it from being used as a political tool. And of course, its direction can change with the administrations and what's important to various administration. So when I think about creep, I mean that more and more deals are subject to national security review and have to think about national security, which is a pretty opaque area of law for dealmakers than they did before. Yeah, so this is Kristen. So I think that the expansion of CFIUS's jurisdiction and the expansion of its personnel to really conduct the national security reviews is one piece of national security creep. As we discussed in the paper, we think this is part of a broader phenomenon of this expansion of national security related review and regulation of cross-border investments to allow government interventions in more transactions than ever before. You've got CFIUS, but this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. We've also seen the spread across the world and particularly to U.S. allies of other CFIUS-like processes, so investment screening mechanisms in Europe, in Australia, and Japan. And those have been either established or in some cases just ramped up and strengthened over the last couple of years. And then the last piece that we talk about in the paper in terms of national security creep is the move to think hard about screening outbound investment. So CFIUS is focused on inbound investment, foreign investment into the United States. There are proposals in Congress and there's some suggestion that the executive branch might move forward even without Congress to do screening of investment from U.S. persons outbound. So into places, particularly China. And the Trump administration actually did the first restrictions on this. They issued an executive order to restrict outbound investment from the United States into Chinese companies linked to China's military. The Biden administration made some changes to that order and formalized it and changed the scope of it, but they've essentially continued those kinds of restrictions. And there's this broader debate about whether to establish either by Congress or within the executive branch's authorities an outbound screening process. So all of these things taken together go to the point Kathy made about We're just seeing this national security-based intervention or regulation and screening of an increasing number of transactions that cross borders. And that's what we mean by national security creep. Kathy, you talked about your experience with deal-making when you were an MA lawyer a decade ago. You described CFIUS as being a really sleepy area that deal-makers weren't necessarily thinking about at all or very much about. How are market participants dealing with this national security creep today as they negotiate transactions? And what does that perhaps imply for either the theory or practice of contracting and contractual design? 
I think some of the national security risk can be allocated like any other sort of regulatory risk. If you know that your deal is either going to file for preclearance or is at high risk of being reviewed without filing for preclearance, you could put CFIUS preclearance in as a closing condition. You could tie it in with termination fees. You could say which party is going to be more involved in the filing or how much they're the efforts that they're going to take in cooperating with those filings or cooperating with mitigation or investiture orders and the like. So if you know that CFIUS is coming for you, that's something that you could do. If you don't know that it's coming for you, which I think is the challenge. So sometimes you might close a deal that you think, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with CFIUS. This is pretty far out there. They can come back to you after the deal is closed and for a long time after the deal is closed. In that case, it's very hard, I think, to deal with it in the contract. In terms of what we think about the theory and practice of contracting and contract design, I think part of it is that practitioners have to get comfortable with the fact that there is this uncertainty there and they can decide, are we going to flag it by filing for preclearance? Are we going to try to bounce some of these national security issues into a side letter, for instance? And I think they have to learn to deal with this unknown in a way that I don't know that everyone has quite figured out yet. The power of CFIUS to require mitigation agreements or the power of a president to enter certain orders with respect to perhaps even blocking a deal, that's a pretty significant power. Is there any sort of appeal or remedy that transactional parties have if they disagree with a decision of CFIUS or of the president? Can they go to court? And if so, how have courts typically treated these types of issues? And what might these issues reveal about perhaps even judicial deference to the executive branch in the national security context. This is Kristen. So let me just start by saying a word about why it makes sense to even think about the courts in this circumstance. You've got the executive branch on both this inbound and potentially the outbound CFIUS issues, exercising really broad delegated powers. And particularly in the context of CFIUS, they're doing it largely in secret. And you've got Congress that has been in the position of pushing the executive to do more. So this is not a situation where Congress is reigning in the executive and these are the branches that are really butting heads and restraining one another. And so one reason to think about the court is to think about, is there a check on this process? When you have Congress and the executive rowing in the same direction and doing it outside of public view, is there some other check? And courts are one possibility. Courts often stay out of national security cases, though, due to problems with standing, political question doctrine, all those sorts of jurisdictional and justiciability issues. But we think that with respect to the kind of economically focused national security regulations that we are talking about as part of national security creep, the courts do have a role to play because you have a regulated party that is in a position to challenge the government orders. So you've got a private party that is subject to regulation, subject to maybe a divestment order or investment restriction. And so they're in a position to maybe launch judicial challenges. But this raises the question then of what do you do about the fact that judges are typically deferential to the executive branch in national security and foreign relations cases. They cite functional reasons. They'll say the executive has access to better information and it's in charge of foreign relations by and large. And so judges sit back. But I think part of what we are thinking through in the paper is as we're watching the expansion of national security as a sphere of executive action and increasing claims about what falls within that sphere, Do judges expand the deference that they typically give on national security to match the scope of those expanded executive claims, or do they do something different? And we have a couple of possibilities in the paper for what is that something different. One possibility is that 
judges, you know, these economically focused claims about we need to restrict investment to China as a national security matter because we need to maintain our competitive advantage in various tech areas. Does that make them more skeptical about deference to the executive about national security across the board? That's one possibility. Another possibility is that they just start slicing and dicing the big category of national security into what you might think of as like traditional national security claims. So use of force, terrorism stuff, as compared to these economically focused claims that we're focused on. And so you could imagine a circumstance where judges just start saying, OK, this is not all national security or this is two different kinds of national security. And so you see them being less deferential on these economically focused claims. And we've seen some early skepticism from judges that suggest that might be the case. So some of the companies that were caught up in the Trump administration's ban on investments in companies linked to China's military actually filed judicial challenges in the U.S. And a couple of them won preliminary injunctions on the grounds that designation was not in compliance with the Administrative Procedure Act, that it wasn't supported by the requisite evidence. So it raises this question of what is the role of the judiciary in overseeing national security? And does this change in what counts as national security change how judges act? Your essay is expressly a mostly descriptive project. You note that you've decided, at least at this stage, that you are going to hold off on any big policy prescriptions, reforms around this concept of national security creep. With that in mind, I wonder if you can maybe identify critical issues that policymakers, that deal makers, that federal judges, that the public should be thinking about when they think about this issue or this concept of national security creep. And are there any takeaways from this essay or from this interview that you'd like listeners of the podcast to have? You're right that the contribution of the project is largely descriptive. So one of the reasons we decided to work on it was that there just wasn't very much out there about what the landscape of CFIUS looked like today, especially after FIRMA, and what that meant for the future of working on contracts and also the future of how courts would deal with these kinds of issues, which I think are both really important points. I think for dealmakers who are thinking about doing deals in this landscape, I think it's helpful to understand that CFIUS A exists and B, how it works, and also that it might become a more active area of practice. Kristen and I have both heard from students who are now working on these issues, and that's just not something, when I was in practice, I don't think that many people worked on CFIUS-related issues, and that wasn't a lively area of practice. I tell students now that they will likely encounter a CFIUS issue in their first year of practice, and they should come back and tell me about it so that I can put it in my exam, because it's a really interesting and rapidly developing area. I agree with that. And I'll just add that a large part of the reason why we left this for now as a descriptive project is also because it's just so hard to tell what's happening. So we're writing about developments that are recent, right? It's early days with respect to how FIRMA actually plays out. So in terms of regulations, we're in the second full year of them being in effect. Some of the other countries we write about in the paper are like the United Kingdom has a new national security screening, investment screening mechanism. It just went into effect at the beginning of 2022. So there've been a lot of moving pieces. And as we've already talked about, so much of what happens with respect to CFIUS and with other countries' investment screening mechanisms is confidential. So it's really hard to study CFIUS when you don't know all the parties that CFIUS, all the deals that CFIUS is reviewing. You don't know 
what the particular concerns are in each deal. You don't know what the particular mitigation measures are with respect to each deal. So one of the takeaways that I hope you know your listeners, policymakers take from the podcast and the paper is the need for greater transparency. I think it's important and it would be really helpful for the executive branch in particular to talk more about this, to more clearly articulate the kinds of national security concerns they have. And the Biden administration is doing some of this. So in September of 2022, President Biden signed an executive order on CFIUS that talked more explicitly than before about the nature of some of the concerns. It talked explicitly about cybersecurity, talked explicitly about the fact that CFIUS is looking at patterns of transactions. So, you know, an investor or a country that's doing investments in a particular sector that any one of which might not look too concerning, but when you realize it's a whole pattern that raises more concerns. Efforts like that, I think, are really important because it allows not just scholars like us, but Congress, the public, deal parties to have a better understanding of what exactly the concern is, and then ultimately to measure the efficacy of what CFIUS and other investment screening mechanisms are doing against their stated goals. If you understand what the concern is, then you can better assess, well, does this regulatory system, is it fit to purpose? Is it serving the goal and the achieving the outcomes it's supposed to? So we need more transparency, not radical transparency. We're not saying make every CFIUS filing public or anything like that, but at a high level and but a little more explicitly about what's the nature of the concern and how effectively are these investment screening mechanisms in other countries, are restrictions on outbound investment, how effective are they at actually meeting the goals we're setting for them? Our guests today have been Kristen Eikenser and Kathy Wong both professors of law at the University of Virginia. We've discussed their essay, National Security Creep in Corporate Transactions, which is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review. I'll have a link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. Kristen, Kathy, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. This was really fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.